Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. We have today a uh, really good friend of mine, Chris Fields, a uh, retired Oklahoma City Fire Department major, retired in 2017. Welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast, Chris. Glad to have you on. Thank you, Brad, man. Honored to be here and hello to all the listeners. <laughs> Chris Fields, tell us uh, a little bit about who Chris Fields is. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, and how you got into your passion for fire industry. Chris Fields, man, born and raised uh, right here in Oklahoma. Grew up most of my life in Dell City, Oklahoma, little suburb east of the city here. And then uh, during my early high school years, I moved to Moore, and that's where I, you know, graduated and from Moore High School way back in 1982. It's a long time ago. It's a long time ago, uh, man. We're getting old. Yeah, yeah, we are. And grew up the the middle, you know, the kid that gets neglected, the middle child. Oh, you were one of those. Yeah, had that going <laughs> against me from the start. Uh, two si- older and younger sister, um, mom and dads, you know, they've been married. They're still together. They're, they're kind of a funny story. They're a whole separate podcast. They've been, their tag says three timers. They've been married and they've been divorced and married three times to each other, just to each other. Oh, that's awesome. Whole, whole crazy story. So that's uh they can't stand each other, but they can't stand to be apart. That kind of. Yeah. Happens. Well, if we really went into my child, my dad years ago, man, he was a professional gambler, but you name it, he was out doing it. And, you know, just, it was just one of the, it was just the times. Sure. And, uh, but all, all good now grew up at, grew up going to a, a church called South Lindsay Baptist church where the, uh, the pastor was Paul Sayer. He was also the fire department chaplain. His son, Greg was my best friend. Any activities we did at church and you know, like during the youth group or, uh, RAs, which was a little, you know, kind of like a boy scouts, but in church, you know, I guess kind of uh, firemen were usually my, you know, sponsors or your, whatever you want to call them leaders in those groups. Matter of fact, uh, the last chaplain we had when I retired was Ted Wilson. Oh, Teddy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. he was my youth, he was my youth sponsor, youth director growing up at church. Oh yeah. I know Teddy. So yeah. So I was around just around the fire service growing up just because the men, men at church respected the man, loved them all. They were great dudes. Would go hang out at the fire station sometimes with Paul Sight with the chaplain. And I don't know, man, just the, you could tell they loved their jobs. They, uh, the public revered them. I mean, as a kid growing up, you know, you notice those kind of things and, I don't think I remember anybody be griping about their job. You know, they just loved it. So it was kind of, it kind of put a little twinkle in my eye, I guess to say. Sure. And, uh, you know, got out of high school and did a little college and did a little work at my dad's feed store. And then I thought, yeah, I just couldn't find a path. And I thought, man, I always said I was going to try to get on the fire department and contacted some guys that are still in the fire department that were, like I said, those men that were my mentors growing up in church and, uh, was hired July 12th, 1985. Started rookie school that day. Never looked back. Legend was born that day. Never looked back. And, and it was a, it was like a meant to be deal because they were hiring 25. I finished 26th on the list. After they make you a job offer, you have to go for your final physical or that you go to your final physical and you get a job yeah. offer. Well, I was 26. Somebody in that 25 didn't pass their final physical. So they got booted and I moved up one and the rest is history. That's awesome. <laughs> How many, uh, how many assignments did you have, uh, in your first few years there? Did you, were you basically one station or did you move around? No, your first, uh, your first year back then, I don't know how they do it now. I've been gone six years now. You went to a different station every three months, quarterly rotation, your first year. Then they give you what they call a permanent assignment. As long as you're the low man on the totem pole and you don't have any rank, there's really not a permanent assignment. Yeah. You can go anywhere at any time, but, uh, there's three shifts, A, B, and C, red, blue, and green. And I worked on back and forth between the red and the green. I was never on the blue shift. 
I worked all part. My first year was my first two or three years, man, was just crazy. It was uh, urban renewal time. Things were, you know, 1985, 86, 87, 88. Things were, I was at all busy stations my first year. And then my permanent assignment was station 10, which at that time was one of the busiest stations in the city. You might still be yeah. on one Northwest 16th and Penn. I don't know. It's just, I, I got to see a lot of things early in my job, in the career. And when it came time for testing for promotion, there's a guy, me and Chris, I don't know if it's still true, but me and this guy named Chris Jackson that I went to high school with, uh, at one time we were the youngest ever to be captains on the job. We got hired when we were 20. Uh, I made driver at 24 and I was a captain at 27. So, wow. but I felt comfortable in those roles sure. because we had, I, I was blessed to have such a active first three, four, five years on the job. Is that pretty unique? Is that fairly unique for that age to? Yeah, it really is now because now I, I think now you have to have five years on before you can even test to be a sergeant right. or a driver. Yeah. Back then it was three. And then you had to be three years as a driver to test for captain. So at seven years, you could be a captain, right? which I was yeah. fortunate to to be, you know. So what were some of the best parts of your job back then? I mean, you have a, I can see it on your face. You have a, you have a fond memory. There's obviously fond memories coming um, up as you're starting to talk about that. I mean, you know, I don't think, you know, some people say once the uh, nuance or once the whatever of the job wears off, you know, the lights and the, that never wore off for me, even till the day I retired, man, I used to. I may, I may get up and bitch and moan the next day from being so tired from being up all night, but man, I would love being up down the road and it just that. And the, uh, I think it's changed a little bit back, man. And the fire service was family, family. Yeah. I mean, we, if you were at a station with a group for a while, I mean, you, you did dinners out away from the station, you did holidays, you did everything, you know, and families were always up at the station, man. It was just like a, it was like summer camp 24 seven, like, you know, just having fun. That's what people tell me now. I tell people I miss the, I miss shift change and chow time. That's the fellowship time. Yeah. You know, I really, that, that resonates with me. I came on in uh, 92 and, and there's somewhere in there and I don't remember where it, it changed a little bit. It started subtly changing, but I remember early on it, there was such a kinship and a connection. You were around each other on duty and mm-hmm. off duty. You were taking your families, to, you were eating together. You were going to function to get birthday parties. Hey, come over. We're smoking a yep. biscuit. Okay. We'll be over in a little bit. You know, just, it was nonstop in each other's worlds. So yeah, I, I it really resonates. And you know, and, and I say that as fond as those memories are, and I know we'll talk about present day and all that, but now I could look back or I now I could even say, it's probably good to have a little something else going sure. besides all those people you work yeah. with all the time. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but I, at the time I didn't know any better and man, sure. it was the best. If they'd let me, I'd do, I'd do that entire 31 years, seven months and 16 days all over again. It was that good. It was that good. That's awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's skip forward a little bit. So your, your career has taken off. You're having a great time. And uh, let's just cut to the cut to the chase here. What uh, Chris feels is uh, one of the most heavily impactful portions of Chris's career is April 19, 1995. What happened that day? April 19, 1995, man, Oklahoma City bombing. I'll always, I know it was a Wednesday. I'll always remember it was a Wednesday. At stations, you have different duties you do on each day, you know, and Wednesdays was yard day, station five. So I remember some of the guys out working in the yard, uh, mowing and weed eating and all that kind of stuff out in the station when the, uh, when the bomb was detonated. I can always tell you that it was, I couldn't have told you it was 902, but if somebody would have asked me, I could have said around nine because we were giving the new boy a hard time about not having breakfast ready, even though we hadn't been to the store or anything. We just trying to make him sweat a little sure. bit. 
So I think we told him that uh, the station officer likes. At, at that time, I was the uh, station five, Northwest 22nd and Broadway, just north of the bomb site. We had three rigs, three apparatus, and so we had a station officer, a junior officer, and a junior junior officer. I was the captain on the hazardous materials unit that day, so I was the junior junior officer. But we were telling the new boy that the station officer liked to have his breakfast on the table by nine because we knew it was nine o'clock. And shortly after that's when the, when the the bomb went off and. Uh, we self disc We looked outside the building. It used to be that old Borden's ice cream plant over there, mm-hmm. and uh, which we frequented quite often. Sure. They let us put on the big old parkers and everything, go in the freezer and just grab what we wanted. <laughs> we had a big old freezer over Station Five, kept it full at all times. But they, um, we went out. We thought maybe a train had derailed or something because our station, the fire station, shook and the windows rattled, and we didn't see anything just out the east door of the kitchen. And so we looked back to the south and saw the large plume of smoke. And uh, that's when uh, we saw the smoke. And so we just self-dispatched. That's And I remember we had to stop and pick up one guy. He was weed eating. And he uh, had his earphones on or hearing protection on, had his back towards downtown. So he was walking you know, north, weed eating along a fence. And we had to stop an air horn and get him. He said he thought it was just uh, like a jet from Tinker Air Force Base. He thought it was a sonic uh, boom or whatever you call it. Yeah. He thought that's what that rush of wind was. Yeah. He had no idea. We left one guy at the station. He had the, he was in the workout room on the bike. He had the music cranked up so loud. He never knew a thing. He ended up driving his, he ended up driving his little Honda Russell Burkhalter. He just passed away. May he rest in peace. He was a great guy. He, uh, he ended up, he had a little bit Honda Accord, little bitty one. And so he ended up driving that thing downtown and find us parked it on the sidewalk somewhere and, and catching up with us. So, I mean, uh, I always remember as we were going down there, I, we were like, that's like Northwest 10th and 11th and Broadway yep. heading towards fifth street and all those little storefronts that used to be there. The windows were blown out. Right. People were coming out kind of, you know, stay uh, dazed and stunned. And so we didn't know what it was, but and at that time we're going, we're thinking natural gas, you know, ONG was doing something or somebody was digging and hit a gas line or, you know, not realizing the, what we were thinking couldn't have done what this bomb did. So just trying to play out in our head what it, what it could possibly be. You know, not knowing. So you're so you're self dispatching your your uh, station five hazmat uh, unit, which is specifically for you know high trained, high technically skilled for hazardous materials. Uh, I, I do know a little bit about that. I went through hazardous uh, materials tech uh, with a bunch of oh, yeah. Midwest City fire guys. That was oh, uh, yeah. that was a rough that was a rough course from dumb old cop not know anything about hazmat stuff but yeah you know you're, you've got a specialized unit going down there which you're you're highly trained highly skilled you're pulling in what what kind of things are you seeing what are you what are you seeing when you guys are pulling up there you no know, i tell uh, i try to compare it to uh and you'll be familiar with it because you're from oklahoma city if you if you're coming from broadway on fifth street towards robinson where the murrah building was right. it's kind of a little hill you know it's kind of a hill so if you're if you're coming up this way, you can't see over the hill, the bottom, you can't see the bottom of the Murrah building. You can't see. So we spotted away from, uh, we spotted it just, just turned on to Bro- uh, fifth street off Broadway. And that's where we spotted the rig started walking towards the building. And man, I mean, it was like, uh, remember when we were little, we'd go to the movie theater and one of the previews would be the blob or whatever. She was like people pouring out of a movie theater right. running. Yep. Yep. That's what it was like. I mean, it seriously, it was just a hordes of people coming, coming at us. And, uh, you know, signs of walking wounded, you know, from flying debris and glass. And Did you have any idea at that point what had happened? No, 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 no. Well, we still had no idea that it was a, yeah. a, a, a bomb. I'll skip ahead real quick. We found out it was a bomb when they evacuated the building for the first time, when they made us get out, because they said uh, they thought they okay. found another bomb okay. or another explosive. Then we were like, 
what do you mean another explosive device? We never knew it was an explosive device to begin with when we were first. And, and the first thing we did was um, there used to be a YMCA mm-hmm. uh, caddy corner from the Murrah building. It had a daycare in it also. And there was a lot of confusion at first because was it the federal courthouse or the federal building? Because I think a lot of people thought it was the federal courthouse. Well, it wasn't. It was the federal building. And then when they got talking about daycares, a lot of people didn't know there was a daycare in the federal building, right, the Murrah right. building. People thought they were referring to the daycare at the YMCA. So we set up triage there with uh, our station officer, John Cruz, set up triage there. And so we treated, well, there was just a lot of uh, walking wounded stuff, mm-hmm. flying debris, you know, uh, cuts and scrapes. And probably 10 minutes into that kind of triage, and the command asked for ladder five, truck five, and hazmat five to come down there for an assignment. So we left the engine with some guys there doing the triage, and we walked just across the street to the command. What was the command post at that time, which uh, was not communications were horrible. Police fire couldn't talk to each other. We couldn't hardly talk to them. It was just, it was, it was a godsend, I guess, in the end, because we ended up getting uh, 800 megahertz. We got better communication systems. We got, mm-hmm. you know, and it was just so chaotic. And that first, we look back and we say, and we'll get into it when they talked about that first time when I said they made us evacuate. That was really kind of a, a blessing because we got to take a breath and they got to kind of organize the what they need to organize as far as command people and the chiefs and the police and fire getting where, who's going to do what. and what. So it was kind of a, kind of a blessing that that came to kind of squelch the chaos there for a little bit. You know, uh, it, it's funny you bring that up because I, I uh, just chasing a little bit of rabbit on that. The ICS system actually gained traction and legs from that event. Is that, is that not correct? Mm-hmm. I, I, that is correct. It was probably the first, you know, we've been training on it. ICS right. 100, right. 200, NIM, all this kind of stuff. And I could be totally wrong. And maybe I just want to toot our horn. I don't know. But, uh, that's the first, I think, I think when it was really kind of implemented, it was one of the first major incidents that they got to apply it to where you had branches and divisions and sectors and that we used every, we used every ounce of the IMS. And it worked. And it, it worked. It, it was, it worked. It was, and, uh, right. Yeah, it, it worked. It, it really did. Once we got it in place and everything. And, you know, also at that time we were brand new, the fire department, uh, we were at that time, I think they were talking about becoming a USAR team back then. Mm-hmm. And we just started kind of training and it, back then it was, we called it rescue training. So we had been out to the drill ground, learning how to, you know, create a fulcrum to move these large boulder and stump, you know, we had just started kind of learning that stuff, rescue systems one, two, and sure. three, but it was all heading towards, I think, where we are now with, you know, uh, one hell of a, a USAR task force. Sure. So, uh, listen, we could spend a lot of time talking. Let's 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 keep oh, moving yeah. forward on. So, so what's going on with Chris at this point? Let's personalize it a little bit and make it, you know, what's what's going on with Chris and, and how, what are you doing on the bomb site there? Thinking about it, Brad, you know, there, for the longest time, I think everybody was just kind of walking around with our mouth kind of, you know, hung half open. And it wasn't really until we got called away from that triage and we got called to the command post where we actually got our first full view of the building. And I remember walking and not even touching the pavement. You're walking on glass and concrete and just, you know, yeah. Debris everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You're not even touching the pavement. And I always, when I, when I talk to people about it, I'll tell them, you know, we stood there, I think we got our assignment and I thought it feels like we were to stand there just staring, but I know we weren't, but if you would have, at nine o'clock in the morning, seeing the damage we saw, and if you'd have said, hey, there's only going to be a hundred only, that's not discounting any of the deaths, sure, but right, if you would have right. said, there's only going to be 169 fatalities, I would have said, you are absolutely insane. It's got to be full. To see that building and what time of day it was, yep. 
And to think that you're only going to see 168 fatalities or 169 fatalities, I thought at the time you would think, oh, that'd be a blessing to only see, you know, and then the 700 or 800 injuries. So still, I was just like in, in awe. And it wasn't until uh, I had, we hadn't even, when we first got down there, we went down and helped the Oklahoma City police uh, get a lady out of, for the, of the basement. And you know, and I know, because, you know, it was a mezzanine, had a second floor, was the first floor and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so we helped get a lady out of the basement. And uh, I, I remember telling the command we had completed that assignment and he told us to go to the south side of the building to make entry and report. To, I don't remember who to report to, but and that's when the moment I know we're going to talk about happened. That's when out of nowhere, John Avery, Sergeant Avery, John Avery, Oklahoma City police officer, I could, say, I could tell people, I don't know where he came from. I didn't see him come out from around the corner, out of a door, just like he was there. He said he had a critical infant. That's all he was saying. He just kept screaming. And, you know, John will tell you, he didn't dig Bailey out. Somebody handed him Bailey. Right. You know? and, so, and so it was just kind of one of those kind of deals. And he said he had a critical infant. And I just, there's a photo, you know, I, I said, here, I'll take her. Or I'll take it. I don't remember what I said. but And he'll tell you, we've talked so much since then. Like he said, he didn't know what to do. He said he was looking for something. He knew firefighters did first aid, you know. He was looking for somebody that could move this thing up a notch. And sure. so I took her, and when I was I examined her, you know, I checked her for any signs of life, and uh, she didn't have any. Her throat was full of uh, concrete dust, mm-hmm. and she had an open skull fracture, and I couldn't find any signs of life. And looked across the street, and there was an ambulance. I believe it was IMSA then, still IMSA. What name? It was IMSA. It was the IMSA unit. And uh, I get confused on when IMSA and AMCARE, one became the other. And uh, walked over there and told a paramedic or an IMSA guy, I'm assuming he was a paramedic, I said, hey, I have a critical infant. I said, exactly what John said. You know, I didn't pronounce her dead or anything. I said, I have a critical infant. And it's kind of weird to tell the story because it jumps ahead and jumps back. Not not seeing the photo or not knowing about it until seeing it until the next day. Seeing the photo, I know what I was doing now when the photo was taken. I told him I had a critical infant and the ambulance was full couldn't get anybody else in there. They had three people in there, people laying around on backboards on the ground. So he said, let me get a blanket. We're not going to put that baby on the ground. And so he was getting a blanket and I was standing there looking at her thinking, I knew, I knew she was close to my son's age. My son that's 30 now, he was two at the time. And, uh, Bailey, a lot of people don't know. She turned one year old the day before the bombing, April 18th. And so Mm -hmm. I just knew that she was that close to that age. And I thought I was looking down at her thinking somebody's world somebody's world is going to be totally turned upside down today because I knew she was deceased, you know, and then looking back thinking, not knowing then that that same thought for some other first responder, whether it be police, fire, EMS, whatever, that thought that I had or that vision or that what I did saw was going to be seen 167 more times that day, you know, for other first responders. And, uh, just crazy. So, so just for the listeners, just just to, to kind of paint a picture here, the picture uh, that that we're referencing is you, full bunker gear, honorable noble firefighter holding Bailey in your arms, and you're looking down at her. And that picture became instant, almost instantly, worldwide recognition and representative of what was happening here in Oklahoma City. Is that fair? That is very fair, and the, the representation that it that I reference now, and I know we'll probably talk about it, but I didn't want to forget. And, and Sergeant, I mean, Sergeant, Chief John Hanson was huge and helped me recognize. He said, because I was struggling with the being recognized and the sure. identity and being singled yep. out. And like he said, man, that is, that is not about Chris Fields. That's about you representing every first responder, no matter what uniform they have on, and Bailey representing all the innocence that was lost. And that really still gets to me because that really helped me process, you know, accept that I, I couldn't change sure. it. But it helped me understand how people yeah. view it instead of going, 
oh, look at Chris Fields, that firefighter. They're going, look what those people went through, you know, so that helped a bunch. And, and the picture is powerful even still today. You know, it's so, such a, such a powerful message of, you know, as I've, I've got it pulled up here, as I'm sitting here looking at it, it is pain, heart-wrenching, love, compassion, empathy. I mean, there's so many emotions that are elicited when you stare at that picture. Just recognize, I mean, you don't have to be an Oklahoma City native to know, man, there's that, right. that firefighter and all the rest of the first responders on that on that event are going through, through something awful. Um, right. uh, but that's why we do it. That's why we do what we do. Right. right. We try, right. we want to take a bad situation and make it better. That's right. We meet people at their worst, at their worst moments yeah. in their life. We meet them there and say, I'm going to help you through this. Right. So the picture takes off. Let's, I know we're skipping a whole lot of the, <laughs> of the bombing itself, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of keep pushing us forward to this okay. impact. And, and, you know, if I've left something off that you want to throw out here, please uh, dive in it. No. But okay. this picture impacted you greatly, but is it fair to say you didn't realize the level of impact at that moment that began to torment you and haunt you over the next what years? Uh, yeah, let's say we'll get to it. And it's kind of weird. It's, uh, I, I get my, you know, we'll talk about travel around and get to speak and everything. And I get that platform from that photo, but I don't, I, when I tell my story, I like to talk about, it was the accumulative trauma. Sure. The, now the bombing is I'll get, I'm gonna get into it here in a second. It was that event and a trigger from that event that brought me down. But when it brought me down, it, everything came back, Yep. you know, previous to the bombing 1989, we lost three firefighters in a house fire. One of those was my mentor, Benny Zellner, one of the guys from the church I grew up around, one of my youth sponsors, one of my, you know, the reason I got on the fire department. Everyone, everybody wanted to be Benny Zellner. This dude was fresh shirt. Good. I mean, he was just fireman's fireman. So, you know, that was back in 89. We're about the same age. We're from that suck it up era, you know. And sure. Yep. That's what we were did. That's what I was raised by grizzly old gritty firefighters. And it's not that they weren't sympathetic or empathetic. or that, It's just the way they were raised in the fire service. It's sure. just the way it was. You had to, you had to put it away and get ready for your next call. You know, as far as the photo, it was, uh, the big struggle for me was I, I met Aaron the next day. Aaron is Bailey's mom, mm -hmm. met her the next day. And I guess it's a blessing, blessing, blessing that, you know, I was connected with her and we've become great friends. Our families are still friends, but it was different because in the fire service or even when y'all's line of work, when we're done with the call, we're done with the call. Usually we don't know unless we call and check, we do, don't know patient outcomes sometimes, you know? Uh, we don't, and, and the bombing and rightfully so we had that, we lived it every day in the media, in the news, we saw it, we saw it. And now I'm connected with Aaron. So I know everything she's feeling and going through because now I'm like this big brother to her. I mean, she's having a, that's, I was her go-to and I accepted that because I felt that was my responsibility. I felt that because after talking to her, you know, I was the last one to, that she knows to hold her baby. You know, she didn't get to grieve. And I'm blaming myself for the photo, which I had no control over. Sure. But uh, she didn't get to grieve privately at all because of the photo, you know. And then the being being singled out, uh, that was hard, man. That was that was one of the that was that was a hard deal being singled out like that. But I will say, with the exception of other than maybe half of one percent, man, the support I got from the men and women on the Oklahoma City Fire Department was outstanding. It's one thing to tell them to get through it. Was there was there support and their encouragement? You know. They were just encouraging, going, hey, man, you're doing a good job representing the fire department. You know, that, that kind of stuff. They Whether they meant it or not, it helped. Sure. <laughs> you know? and, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that, that kind of stuff, and it was it was wearing me out. But just like we do, we're, we're hired and we're put on this pedestal for being tough and being able to handle things. And so I don't want the guys and girls that work underneath me that I'm supervising to think I can't handle my job. And I don't want the people that put me in that position 
to think I can't handle the job they expect me to do. You know me more personal than a lot of people. I'm, I like being the cut up guy, the haps, you know, the center of attention, I guess, you know, happy go lucky. And that's, that's what I did. I just kept that up until I got home. That's when I would start having these little, what I call mini bouts of just depression, man, so lethargic, want to isolate, not do anything. This was, uh, I was good at it. I was good at manipulating and playing the system and knowing when to, when I could get away with feeling how I wanted to feel and when I had to turn it off and turn on the Chris Fields, everybody expected, you know. Sure. That went on for about, golly, seven or eight years, dude. I mean, it wasn't bad. You know, it would come, sometimes it would be bad, bad. One day, I tell you what, it, when it really, we were putting a pool in our backyard where we still live now, and I was helping some guys. We were going to extend the patio, so I was busting out concrete. And it started to rain, and I caught a smell of wet concrete. And it was, I, was, I was working a jackhammer. I'll never do that again. Uh, working a jackhammer and uh, started to rain. Well, a lot of people, you probably remember, you know, it rained the night of the Oklahoma City bombing. You know, it was kind of a damp, wet, uh, that same smell that was inside the building is exactly what I smelt out here on my back patio. I think maybe if I'd have been in a wide open area, it wouldn't have been so bad, but I was under my aunt, my patio cover, so it just kind of was right there. And I thought, man, that smells just like the Oklahoma City bombing. It didn't like take me to my knees or I didn't freak out, but it was just, it was just a trigger. Now I know what a trigger is. And I can man, I can pinpoint that to the day. I've actually got the day we poured the concrete. We wrote it in the concrete. So I could, I could go out there and look and tell you the exact day. That's when everything really started to intensify. The depression, the isolation, the anger, the uh, anger over nothing. Looking for something to be mad about. You know, the, and the isolation was, wasn't like being just sitting in a dark room, but it was like, just not want to be around many people. Like I was like super dad, coach my boys, you know, and you, Hey, I'll pay you 300 bucks come in for two hours. So I won't miss an event. Well, I kind of started not making the effort to get there. Cause I just wanted to have dinner, chow at the station, visit for a minute and just go sit in my office at the station. You know, just, I sit in my office at the station for, well, sometimes I'd come out and make a ride. I'd see him. Hey guys, get back in the ride. I do what I had to do and back in my office. So, but it, it was worse at home, but I kept up a good attitude. I didn't think sure. anything, anything bothered me, just like I had stuff to do. And so, uh, man, this went on for, and it started getting, it started affecting our home life. The The communication was horrible. So when she's telling me, asking me what's wrong and I say nothing, but yet I'm acting like something's wrong. She thinks it's her, sure. you know? And so it was, uh, things were spiraling out of control here. Got in with my group of boys that were kind of in the same shit world I was in. So that's who I wanted to be around. So if I needed to start an argument here, but we started arguing over such this dumbest stuff. You know, our arguments got verbally violent, never physical violence, sure. verbally. Right. I guess that's the way to say it. Because like I said, I said things to my boys' mothers that nobody should ever have to hear, you know, somebody say about their spouse. And that's some of my struggles today, which we'll talk about. You know, you can't take some of that stuff back, even though you're forgiven. You struggle sure. with it. But it just got to a point to where Cheryl was, was fed up and she didn't know what to do. Uh, that's why I'm a big advocate for family nights or whatever they need to do in rookie schools or whatever. So spouses, significant others know what to look for. So they can say something, know what to look for and make, cause there is, there's things you can say and things you shouldn't say. Right. You know, there's certain trigger things that if you want to talk to me about something, don't say this because yep. then I'm going to shut down, you know? So, I mean, there's just so much to learn and, and we're all learning slowly, but surely, but, um, uh, it came to a point to where Cheryl told me to, you know, I need to go talk to somebody or I need to get out because she isn't living like this anymore. Well, I was kind of like, well, Chris Field, you ain't going to tell me what to do. 
So I packed my I packed my shit and I got out. I'm not going to talk to anybody. So where am I going? Yeah. Where Where am I going to live? Right. right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Forty something years, I strike out and go live with my mom and dad for a while until an apartment comes available. I'm living in an apartment about as big as this little bonus room here that I'm sitting in. How long you been house. married at this point? June twentieth will be 36 years. Oh, that's awesome. We've been together 40. Yeah. Far. We dated four years. We've been together 40 and uh, married 36 by the grace of God. Oh, that's so great. So, so at this point you're moving out, how, how many years then had you, had you had together? Man, you're gonna make me do math. Gosh, dang it. Uh, oh, that's all right. Let's keep going. 25 years probably. Let's, okay. Yeah. yeah. Past the 20 mark. Yeah. We got married in 87. Sure. So 97, 2007 would, Oh no. Yeah. About 20 probably. Yeah. And uh, so 20 year, 20 year mark, you're, you're, hey, I'm out. Deuces. I'm not going to see anybody. You don't get me. You don't understand me. I don't want to listen to this. Exactly. I'm out. Exactly. Let me, I can handle my shit. Just let me, you know. Yeah. You know, uh, you know and I almost got so, you know, and she's always working, but I almost got to the point where I was like, you know what? Hey, you got a roof over your head. You drive you a nice car. What do you, what do you got? You know, what do you care? I mean, what do you, what do you care? Let me, let me do what I'm doing because I, you know, Right, because she right. let me do it for so long. I was it was just a light. I was so used to it, you know. I knew right. I could come here and get away with being kind of moody and angry. And uh, I think when yeah. I went to work, I was totally different. So I moved out. We were separated seventeen months, seventeen months, dude. And I'm telling you, except for a, a handful of really close knit people, a lot of people in the fire service didn't even know we were separated. That's how good I was at going to work and playing playing the Chris Fields role. That's how good I was. People never, never thought. And the whole time, all this is I'm, I got a buddy who's making sure I got all the Xanax I need. That was my, that's what helped me get through the days and the nights. And uh, extramarital affair was going on and, and, you know, humiliating Cheryl and the family and my mom and dad and friends that were, all they were doing was just reaching out, offering help, you know, and those are the ones that were pissing me off. The ones I wanted to be around were the ones I was sitting with at the strip bar during the day drinking beer telling me everything I was doing was okay. You know, you got to do what you got to do. You know, that's, that's the support I was looking for at that time. Any, if, if anybody didn't want to support what I was doing, I didn't have time for them. Right. Cut them off. Period. Oh yeah. So where did the turn happen? The turn happens with, um, you know, and at this time, you know, like I say I'm, I'm still struggling with the kind of the bombing issues and some other issues on the job, you know, some calls that kind of still pop me a little bit, but by this time, I think one time it just hit me. I was sitting there one day and I think I went down by myself and watched no you baseball game, got back to my apartment and sat down and thought, now what? The only friends I want to call are they're either, you know, out with other buddies or some of them have probably moved back home or whatever. So I don't know. It just started not started. It really became more of what I've done to my life issue then, you know, it really wasn't the, to me looking back, it wasn't the, PTSD stuff I was struggling with at that time. It was, it was what I had done to my, my family and my life. Right. I'm thinking this right. great career, dude, you know, great career. And great. And here I'm living in this. So I, uh, didn't have a plan, didn't have a written plan or anything, but I just thought I could take enough Xanax and drink enough crown Royal that, you know, if I didn't wake up that everybody could, that everybody could turn the page and, you know, because Cheryl was still fighting for me because uh, she'll tell you, she, she knew I own my shit. I don't blame PTSD and anxiety, depression, all that for any of my actions. They were all conscious decisions I made. 
But when you do, right. when you do enough of them, you get to the point where you don't care about any repercussions or, you know, I mean, right. that's what it was. So, but, you know, and talk sure she'll tell you, there was a point where she said she used to pray every night for God to take her love away from me, her, her love for me away from her. She said, I didn't want to love you anymore, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop. She said, cause I knew it wasn't you. I was, you know, dealing with, she goes, I just wanted to, she said, my, she got to the point where she just wanted me to be Chris Fields again. If everything worked once I was Chris Fields again, great. If it didn't, it didn't, but at least I was present to be a father again and be that kind of stuff. So now you found this out after you didn't know this at the time, this was what was going on with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is, this is all stuff I'm, I'm learning, you know, and, uh, I woke up that next morning. I actually woke up in the middle of the night, kind of drenched in sweat and everything. And felt like I was, uh, <clears throat> I remember going to the, it was a two bedroom apartment. I remember like going into this bedroom, like looking for my boys, like not searching, but like going to check on them. Like they were, infant age you know by this time they were 17 and 11 you know and uh i think i just gathered myself i thought man i was i thought there's no way this is my what i'm supposed to be doing no way and like i said kind of whether whether my marriage is saved or not i can't do this anymore i got to do something and i thought there's no way this is what my purpose is uh you know and when i say purpose i'm talking about being a father and a friend and i'm not talking about what I get to do now, you know, travel around and stuff. I was talking about just living life. Right. And, uh, and, and you know, my, my mom, she's always been this prayer warrior type in my life. And she used to always tell me, she goes, you think, and she said this before the bombing and the folks, she'd say, you think there's not a reason God laid out that plan. You were number 26 and some kid didn't pass it. Said, now you're on the fire department. And then when the photo, she's going, there's a reason, there's a reason, there's a reason, you know, and, I think I, with that, I'm getting pissed too, going, well, then he needs to show me the reason. Right. You know, yeah. because they, <laughs> yeah. and I, I tell everybody after all this, I've always really learned that mama's always right, you know, and everything's on God's timing. And uh, because I was, he let me go until I couldn't go anymore. Called my wife and told her I was ready. And she said, well, come home. Let's get it going. And uh, came home, reached out to fire department chaplain, Ted Wilson. Back then, the Red Cross had a fund set up to pay for anybody that needed counseling or anything. So the Red Cross paid for my trip out to uh, WCPR in California. WCPR. I thought I said it like the WKRP in Cincinnati. I thought that ain't right. <laughs> I think yeah, of that yeah, every so, time. Yeah. Well, I say that when I talk about the Xanax. Yeah, Xanax. What's the uh, what's the one for like stomach acid and everything? Oh. Uh, Zantac uh, or Zantac. something. Yeah. I think one time I was speaking, I said, yeah, I was hooked like that strung out or hooked on Zantac. And they were like, really? <laughs> I was like, well, you know what I meant? Yeah. Red Cross paid for, paid for my uh, trip out to WCPR in uh, California. Great, great facility. Kind of the first time, even though I had these buddies that were in the shit world like me, they were in my shit world. I didn't know what their issues were. I just knew they were in my world. You know, when I got out there to treatment, it was the first time really that I could, I saw other first responders, uh, there was trooper, LA, there was uh, chips people, there were firefighters, cops, sheriffs, EMS. And man, I thought, okay, this might be okay. And I'm not the only one, right. you know? Now, of course, my little mind that I'm going, okay, we're the only ones. <laughs> Us right. 12 that are at this retreat, we're the only ones. Uh, but man, just to see you weren't that unicorn, that's going, I was kind of like going, you can't, because things that they were telling, I was going, God, how are they even functioning? You know, and then some things I'd go, that's not bad. 
So, you know, I got learned that you can't compare trauma, number one. But uh, I don't know, just seeing that I really wasn't alone, that I was not the only one having these issues and struggling and going through the, you know, the same things. Uh, it was huge. Uh, was introduced to uh, uh, EMDR, uh, came back home. Didn't work out the best at first. I really wasn't doing any of my follow-up plan. Uh, Cheryl was still struggling with some issues. So I actually moved back out. Just went to my mom and dad's for a couple months. I think we just, we, I, we just moved back in too quick. I mean, not, that sounds weird. I, if you want to work on things, I think you need to be together. We had some other issues we needed to get fixed before we could work on sure. us. Sure, absolutely. And yep. uh, when I moved back out with my mom and dad's house, uh, she started going to some individual counseling for a lot of stuff she had never dealt with. I got some of my stuff figured out and then we started going to counseling together and I moved back home and follow. And I started my follow-up plan. I started seeing, you know, Kathy Thomas and doing all my EMDR stuff and driving to Stillwater and back and forth. And, uh, you know, when I was first doing that, there's days I would head to Stillwater and pull over, just sit at a rest stop for an hour and a half, two hours and come home. And cause I knew, I knew Kathy couldn't say anything. Right. Not with the, you know, the confidentiality, I, that's, that was, that was how I handled it at first, but I've always wanted them to do, you know, I always want to kind of try to do the best and be the best. So I thought if I'm going to be the best, I'm going to be the best at this. So I buckled down and dove into the EMDR stuff and, and talked about issues. And we I've been back home since 2010 or 11. I mean, yeah, we still argue now. Cheryl's still wrong about quite a bit of stuff that we argue about. <laughs> no, it's been, uh, it's been, man, it was, it was a struggle, but we wouldn't be where we are as husband and wife. I wouldn't be the, the, my boys are grown now. They're 30 and 24, but I wouldn't be the father I am and all that. If I, uh, people say, would you go through it all again? Well, the answer would, the smart answer would be no. Right. Why would I put myself, but then right. again, I say probably so because it's made me, who I am, who I am today as far as a father and a friend and a husband. So incredible, uh, incredible journey. And, you know, marriage is hard enough without overlapping it with, uh, um, yeah. you know, the difficult jobs that we have as first responders. And obviously your, your story, uh, is such a, an amazing journey of pain and hurt and trauma, you know, and, and, but I think one of the important points that I would love to draw out on that, it was, is the, the fact that you, and I was just talking to, to uh, somebody recently about the honesty piece of, of really, you're going to get in, out of therapy what you put into therapy. And if you're not uh, transparent and honest with what's really going on internally, then they don't, they, they're not mind readers and they're not soul, nope. soul searchers. They're, right. they're there to help you wade through the pile of shit that you got in your backpack and you know, I think that's a, a great perspective to say, she's not going to tell anybody. You can go up there and, you know, lie yeah. or, you know, distort the truth or fudge or just not be kind of fully whatever. Uh, you know, I've been there myself in therapy sessions where yeah. like, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to throw that yeah. out there. Uh, you know, because there's a lot of fear, a lot of fear of judgment, a lot of fear of what's this going to do? What's going to happen? Am I going to have to deal with this? How am I going to deal with it? All those things, right? Yeah. And, uh, I think it speaks we, we, volumes to you uh, in the honesty piece of just saying, you know what, all the cards on the table here. Yeah, and, and there is, there's that fear because, man, the fire service is like a beauty shop. I mean, the rumors and the stories and, the, you know, <laughs> he said, hey, did you hear about you? you know, and uh, yeah, it's like, uh, it's, it's horrible. It's a, it's like a family, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's crazy. But 
I think that's, you know, one of the things when I got back from uh, treatment and went through treatment and, and went through some assignments on the job, uh, was off the rigs for a while, but I was like over our special ops, like over our, the training part of hazmat and dive and all that kind of stuff. But uh, then when I went back to station, I was blessed to get to go to station 35, which is just right over here, not too far from the house. Just man, just got stuff with a great crew, guys I'd worked with in the past. And uh, man, I just laid it all out on the table, told them where I'd been, what I'd been through. This is what I did. This is where I've been. This is what I've How was that received? Amazingly, amazingly awesome. I think it even made it easier for I don't want to say that. I don't want to say I came in and Kumbaya and we were great, but I think it made it easier for us to talk about because we had some pretty significant calls there, you know, some uh, children fatalities and house fires and stuff. Sure. And so I think it made it easier for everybody to open up and say, this is how I'm feeling, which doesn't mean you have to go get help or go see a counselor or anything. I think it made it easier for, for us to, to talk about things. And even, even if you're struggling with something at home, you know, or upset about something else, um, it was okay to, to be upset and not have a, you know, I think we finally realized that everybody's going to have those days. As long as you're doing your best, you know, right. Your best to be here one day. It'll be here one day. It'll be, but as long as it's your best, you know, right. Struggles are going to be there. And right. I always tell people that one thing that really, really shocked me was all these friends that were reaching out that I was basically telling them to kiss my ass. Some, I probably actually said that to them with a few other choice words, man. When I reached out for help, they were the ones right there waiting. Right. Uh, those same friends. Yeah. The, my bar fly buddies, huh? they know where to be found, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. The ones that I told them never were done. They were the ones that were, you know, here take helping Cheryl take care of things when I was gone to treatment and all sorts of stuff. So they were the ones that were the ones that I had stepped all over the ones waiting for me when I reached out. So again, it's such a great and amazing uh, journey to be, to be uh, given the listeners here, but I'm going to fast forward us again uh, to today, you know, Chris Fields, this is not anything that you would have wished upon yourself, but you've taken this and embraced it. Uh, You have an amazing platform now of public speaking all across the United States of telling your story of resilience and peace and serenity within yourself. What, what kind of messaging we'll speak to that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. You, we're going to talk about the guys you're hanging with, which is a crazy crew you're hanging with. Talk, talk a little bit about what, what's going on with Chris today. Tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, man. You know, like I say, I'm blessed to have the platform I have and get to travel and speak to other first responders and even spoken out to a few people that aren't first responders, which is kind of different, but you know, yeah, man, I run around with some crazy dude, trauma behind the badge, www.traumabehindthebadge.us. Um, me and uh doug monda chris scallon and raul rivas and now what's uh rich kramer's back on board with us he was kind of one of the original guys but he was still working so he couldn't do as much and but now he's retired he's he's in there and uh man it's just a i'm the token firefighter i'm the oh yeah all the rest are yeah all the rest are law enforcement Man, it was just a great time. We, we get to travel around. We speed. We have a podcast every Tuesday night at uh, 7 o'clock Eastern. It's not family friendly at all. It's just like sitting around the fire station table or out back at the police station or whatever. Sure. Wherever police do, they're talking. Man, we just have, we have awesome guests on there. We, we have clinicians on there. And we just we just talk real. And so I'm involved with that. And I'm involved with Doug Mondo, one of the guys trying behind the badge. He's the co He is the, can't say co-founder because that gives Karen credit. He's the founder of uh, Survive First. <laughs> Survive First Foundation, man, great. I mean, they're just awesome people. You know them. Survive First, man, they want to take any, they, their mission basically is to take any financial hurdle out of the way, keeping a first responder from getting treatment. And Doug will tell you, a first responder's life cannot be compromised. If they reach out, you only, you may only get that one chance. Right. 
So you got to be ready to jump on it. And that's what Surviving First does. We've been able to get, get uh, airfares to treatment, co-pays for insurance, you know, um, you, you name it. Survive First is now merged with the they call the Quail Foundation. Uh, Kevin Lynch uh, runs Quail Foundation. He does a lot of stuff for mental health field, period, and then first responders. And, man, all that does is expanded uh, how many people and how many lives Survive First and Quail they were touching a bunch individually, and now they're together. It's uh, man, they've quadrupled the amount of uh, first responders' lives they can touch. Survive First is an amazing organization, and just to be, just to dive into that a little bit further, I know you mentioned it, but their their financial support for first responders uh, needing mm-hmm. and seeking treatment. Is that fair? Right. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Yes, it is. They they want they want to take the dollar sign out of a first responder for not getting help because that is a that's a huge hurdle. Absolutely. And especially uh, just a quick example. I got a call here one time from a buddy whose son was going to go need to go to treatment, uh, a little PTSD and alcohol. Well, when you're talking a substance abuse, you're talking forty five days minimum. I think thirty or forty five. It's not like you know other things. It's anyway. When they did his insurance and they said, yeah, we do this. Well, he was going to come out of treatment owing $17,000. Well, well, that puts you right back in treatment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'm going to go right back to drinking if I come out and got a $17,000 bill. So I say that not to say that Survive First just write a check for $17,000. Right, right. But there's other things that Survive First can do to help cut the cost. And then we vetted, we vet so many facilities and stuff that we can find one, maybe, you know, that more suitable to your insurance or whatever the case may be. Right. But they just try to take that dollar sign out of, uh, of first responders not getting help and, and veterans, military. Well, you and I both know what that, you know, that steep curve is for actually, once you say, hey, I'm broken and I want help, the, the incline for that goes vertical immediately. Like, holy shit, yeah. what now? You yeah. don't know where to go. You don't know who to talk to. You don't know. Uh, you know, what it's going to cost you, you know, I mean, there are so many unknowns and they're completely and utterly intimidating. Uh, and, and Survive First helps uh, minimize that through, you know, financial support, education, seeking out. Is that fair? Is that, is that a good assessment right there? Yeah, that's, 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 that's perfect. Yeah. Because like you say, when you, you, all you hear is, man, reach out. It's okay to reach out, reach out. People will be there for you. And when you finally submit to that, and like Chris Scallon says, when you finally get to the point where you don't give a shit what anybody else thinks about you, that's when you can truly live. But when you reach out, when I when you reach out, you go, okay, I've reached out. What now? Now what? Yeah. Yeah. You didn't tell me. Now, that person, me and you, we, we, you have to have skin in the game. Right. I can't do everything for you. But, okay, you reached out. That's what I ask you to do. Now, I've got to be ready to sure. do A, B, C, and D to get you, you know, before you go, eh, I've had time to think sure. about it. I think I'll just... Yeah. hundred percent. I'll just quit drinking for a couple of days. I think I'll be okay. Or, you know, so yeah, it's just one of the deals. You just, when they, when the time is there, you got to jump on it. (laughs) So let's circle back to your trauma behind the badge guys. What those, you guys have such a great platform (laughs) and such a fun interaction when you get on there. What's, what's your real mission and goal with trauma behind the badge? I know you guys move the needle pretty hard on that. Yeah. I'll tell you what, we, uh, We've been fortunate to get to go speak together quite a few times. <clears throat> if you had to put it down into simple terms, we'd say, man, here we are. I could probably do a 30-second speech, get up on stage and say, you do not have to wait until the wheels fall off to reach out for help. Right. You know, period. We are all, you included, we're all, what's the word I'm looking for? 
examples, living examples right. of what happens when you wait till the wheels fall off. That's right. You know? Yep. Um, you don't have to compromise your career, your family, your life. Uh, you know, I always tell people I speak, I say, it doesn't mean everything's going to be hunky-dory, Oklahoma term, and, uh, you know, roses and, you know, sunshine all the time. That's not what I mean. But, it, you know, uh, it may not save your marriage. It may not save your job, but we don't give a shit. Yeah. We want to save you. Yeah. And that's what, that's what Scott will tell you. I think one guy, we were talking to a guy and we were on a deal in Chicago and I had a local, another city around here call me and say, Hey, I got this buddy who's, he knew he was in trouble. He talked about maybe not showing up the next day. He had done all this. He said, but I don't want to give his name. I don't want to put his name on the chief's radar screen. And I thought, pardon my French, if I can say it. I thought, cause I'd, I'd learned from Scott and I said, fuck, fuck him. That. Yeah. I said, you don't give a shit about his job. That is not, you want to save his life. Right. He'll be, he might be mad at you and never talk to you again, but he'll be alive. Right. You know? And so I think that's just what we tell people, man. It's just, uh, you don't have to wait until the wheels fall off. I'm like, Doug, I'm almost don't want to hear it's okay not to be okay anymore because it's getting to be where it is. It's not okay not to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know what I mean? I don't mean I, that in a bad I, way, but I mean, I hear you. There, there's so many resources out there. There's so many. It's uh, I used to tell my one that's 24 when he was in college, I'd say, there's no reason to get a DUI or being a fatality. I said, Uber, Lyft, Rideshare, all these programs out there. There's no reason for you to be a partying college kid, which I'm sure he was, for you to get a DUI or anything. There's too many resources out there. Same thing with mental health, man. There's so many resources out there for first responders and, and the military and veterans and all that anymore that... Uh, and I always tell, you know, reaching out doesn't mean you're going to be diagnosed with anything. doesn't mean you're going to go to therapy. doesn't mean you may just need to talk to somebody. Right. So I think we're just like, uh, yeah, we just don't have to wait until the wheels fall off, man. And we just, we're just real. And we're all examples, you know, three out of the five are actual suicide survivors, you know? So, uh, so that's just our message, man. You do not have to wait until the wheels fall off. I think one of the great things about, uh, you know, that, that I find in, in being able to tell my story and I feel it's, it's compounded with trauma behind the badge guys is that going back to something you said when you went uh, first went to uh, WP uh, WCPR yeah. of you found people who understood you who actually you identified with and said I'm not alone in this I think that's one of the powerful messages correct me if I'm wrong here with uh, the trauma behind the badge guys with you and Chris and Rich and Doug and Raul just say hey here's my story Take it or leave it. It's real, but yep. it's motivation, inspiration, and connection with people who actually need to hear. Maybe I'm not alone. Is that fair? Right. Yeah. And that's why, you know, yeah, you're not alone. Every, any, any feeling that people have, first responders or veterans or whatever, after any traumatic event, I don't care emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever that feeling or whatever that detriment is, it's perfect. It's perfectly normal. It's normal. It's a normal human reaction, you know, and especially for, first responders, you know, it's, a uh, that's, Hey, we're first responders for a reason. Uh, it's, it's right here. You know, when your heart gets stepped on, I mean, you know, you make seven, eight bad calls in a row, man, so your heart's getting stepped on seven or eight times and you're human. Sure. So we just try to let them know that everything you feel, everything you, you know, that you go through is, is just perfectly normal, but it doesn't have to control your life sure. to the point to where, you give me a, what I, I try to say, I don't have any bad days anymore. I have days that are worse than others. But now when I get those feelings and when I stop, I don't have to resort to my Xanax or to my alcohol or, you know, I just accept it. 
I accept that that's a feeling that's normal. And I either take my time and go in my office and veg out for a couple of days or go hit some golf balls, or I find another outlet than sort of, uh, you know, Xanax or alcohol. Chris, my friend, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And, uh, what a heart wrenching, gut wrenching, painful story that ends up in such a positive light. So glad to know you, my friend. Appreciate you coming on. Oh, Brad, I, I appreciate it. I can say that's one of the blessings too, is made some lifelong friendships out of this deal. I'd have never known Brad Shepard if it hadn't been through this. And I know I got a lifelong buddy and, you know, Doug and Raul, I kind of <laughs> I don't know if I count that. They're not quite a blessing yet. They're getting there. But uh, I wish we had more time to give them that. shit on here. We'll, we'll, we'll save that oh, for another day. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to get you back on from behind the badge and we can get into them. So, so man, I appreciate you having me on. I love what you're doing, man. I'm so happy for you. Uh, your podcast is great. And I love what you're doing up there at Chateau and everything. All right, my friend. We'll see you soon. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-2224-19-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.